Hello and welcome to Steve Automotive's Cars of the Decade. We're into the 1950s and it's going to be time for some race cars. I'm Sean Smith and I'm joined by Sam Green. Hello. Christopher Strickland. Good morning. And the Montosaurus himself. Hello, don't mind me. I'm just uh, eating some toast. Love it. Uh, and as the walker is... Um... Missing in action. Yes. He might come Walker again. He may make a cameo appearance halfway through the session. Was it Halloween we did that? It yeah. might have been Halloween, yeah. I think, uh, it, I think was. it was. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, as normal, at Cars of the Decade, we uh, review our highlights from whatever decade we're on about and try and explain why. Or in Chris's case, how many, how few were made and why, therefore. I was going to point out, oh, exactly. And if exactly. it was actually made in that decade or not. Yep. Exactly. It was produced in that decade. Oh. It might not have been made, but it was produced. Other oh, uh, uh, bloody technicalities. Let's not get that <laughs> uh, facts get in the way of a good story. Hey, right? I gave you one of the best cars of the 1900s, so fuck you. The 1900s? Was it the 1900s or 1910s? 1920s. No, it was the 1920s made in the 1900s. There we go, you see? You know. Anyway. Culture. Anyway. So, 1950s race cars. Um... I've got my egg timer. It's working, I hope. So, uh, who will start? I'll start. I don't mind. Just as well. Uh, I just wanted to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll tip the baton. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, so sorry. No, it's fine. You enjoy your toast. What's on it? Just out of curiosity. Oh, God. Marmite. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Right. And on that disappointment. Um, so my race car of the 1950s is the Mercedes SLR, 300 SLR, Ooh. the one that Serling Moss won God knows how many races with, and is famed as one of the best race cars ever, and it is drop-dead gorgeous as well. So who wouldn't want one of them? It is stunning. To drive around this is the car you used it's, in it's, the Mille Emilia, wasn't it? It is, yes, the one you used in the Mille Emilia. In 1955, which he won at a record speed of. Oh, bearing in mind, the Mille Miglia is on public roads. This is the 1950s, and it had an average speed of roughly 100 miles an hour over 1600 kilometers. That's a long way. It's a long way, and he's doing 100 miles an hour on average. How outrageous is that? And his co-driver—it's not or even a professional co-driver. It was a motorsport journalist. You just went, "Oh, do you want to jump in?" <laughs> What a story. Oh, <laughs> what a story that is. Also, wasn't this the one where he drove the Mille Emilia, got to the end, took the trophy, and then drove across... Yes, he drove across the Alps. Yeah, yeah towards Switzerland to have a, meet... have a date, basically. Yeah, to have lunch with a girl. Oh, what's yeah. that? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> in, I think it was in the SLR as well. way of saying to someone, look at me, I'm a race car driver. <laughs> and it was That's amazing! It was the best thing ever. Blackout race drivers be like that more often. They're all very public nowadays, and very prim and proper, and ooh, we mustn't do anything too bad. Ah, sod that. Finish the Monaco Grand Prix, go have a date with a supermodel. Why not? Just make sure it's a good supermodel. Anyway, back to good the car. supermodel. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, the engine was a 3-litre-derived uh, Mercedes block from, I think, I it the Le Mans race so, well, uh, sure. Carry on. Um, and it produced 
290 brake horsepower at 8,500 RPM. 8,500 RPM. That's proper race that's, car. That's proper race car. And I think it even had a later model which had 310 brake horsepower. That's 722. Oh, that was just the race number, wasn't it? I don't know. That was the Mili Mili. It's race number, 722. Yeah, come on, sir. Do your research. Jeez. Not everybody could look at Wikipedia on the last minute. Yeah, it had Active Aero as well, didn't it? Did it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did it? Is it on that, is that what on was the active error? No, genuine. I did, this is just something I know. When it, it had a flap behind the driver, a windbreak. Um, yeah, essentially, when you braked, it was like hydraulic and yeah. it was connected to the brake. So when you pressed the pedal, it lifted. That is on Wikipedia, Chris. You should have got that. No, sorry. Apologies. Oh. But yeah, it's, it's, it's an awesome car. But it, the problem it also had was it had inboard drums, I think. Which were correct? Well, because they were too large, according to. They were huge, yeah, but they were too. It meant that at places like Le Mans, that that it was more difficult to change the parts, but they were more reliable. So that's why they'd use them. Speaking of Le Mans, mm. um, it also caused the worst disaster ever at Le Mans. Yeah, it it kind of did. There's a little. There's actually a really cool little animated. I've seen that. Yeah, it's in yeah. French, I think. And it's, it's, you do have to sit there and go, fuck me, that's horrific. And basically, it was down the start-finish line. I think it was Moss's teammate at the time. Uh, yeah, Angel's teammates, Pierre oh, and, Thank yeah, you. Um, crashed on the start-finish line, killing about, was it 80 people? Something like that? 84. Yeah, 84 people. And, and oh, 84 deaths, 120 non-fatal injuries, so 200 people. Yeah, and at the time it was the worst racing incident that I think anybody had ever seen. That's it, it still is. Yeah, really. I can think of that gets close to it would be Jean Mardenborough's flip at the Nürburgring, where he's um, yeah, GT3 GTR. No, it's not anywhere as bad, but it's the only thing I can think of that's close to it. Whereas GT3 GTR took off coming over one of the brows and slammed into the catch fencing, killing a couple of people. It which shows, is it shows horrific. the difference between like modern racing and. Uh, back then, because obviously back then, Mercedes saw the accident, went to the scene of the invest of the site, and eventually pulled their cars out. But it was it's just the, the amount of bureaucracy it took them to actually get their cars to stop after that. I say the race didn't stop, did it? No. That was the thing. The race didn't stop; they just carried on. Yeah, yeah. but the, although there was a reason behind that, they said that if they'd stopped the race everyone would have left all the way around the circuit and that would have caused so much traffic that the ambulances and things couldn't have got through. So there was mm. a little bit of logic there, I suppose. But, but yeah, it was uh, not a good day for motorsport. No, no, but unfortunately... That's like, the reason no, why uh, it's still banned in Switzerland to this day, isn't it? Mm. Well, unless you're Formula mm. E. Oh, unless you're Formula E. Formula E can run in Switzerland for whatever reason, because it's clean. Because it's Taxes. So Taxes. Taxes. <laughs> no, don't, 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 don't mention it. Don't mention it. the Swiss. Don't mention it. So why should you? Because I'm from the other tax haven, allegedly. <laughs> allegedly, <laughs> we are uh, fighting against uh, blacklist status with Switzerland, Liechtenstein, Dublin, Luxembourg. What else is there, guys? The Panama. Not London. Not London. Yeah. They, they, they will pay their taxes there. Anyway, the Londoners pay their taxes. Anyway, so the oh, Mercedes, Mercedes 300 SLR. Beautiful car. Very, very successful. 
slightly deadly. Yeah. Well, it's not really, it's not entirely the, it's not entirely the car's fault. No, to, primarily to magnesium as well, which didn't help when it caught fire. And um, that is the car's fault. Then that that definitely is the car's fault. But magnesium was really cool when you put it in water. I didn't mean to burn. I was just born this way. It really was technically. Um, Sterling Moss's quote on Wikipedia, Chris. Have you got that? I uh, no. Go on. It says the greatest sports racing car ever built. Really, an unbelievable machine. I just love it how that they made a, a road legal coupe of the car. So they did this before anybody other, any major manufacturer in the modern times. You know, in modern times they'll take like a Hurricane GT3 car and go, "Oh, we'll make it road legal, and then it'll be brilliant." Well, Mercedes did that in the 1950s with their 300 with the all, all and 300 SLR coupe, which just looks absolutely stunning. Is that the Gullwing car? I'll say, well, that was the Gullwing, wasn't it? No, 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 no. This is a slightly modified. It's the re It's a race version that's been modified into a coupe. Uh, yeah, yeah. Looking at it, I know it's the like that initial. It was the first one to have Gullwing doors, but it's not the one everyone thinks of when they think of the Gullwing. Mm. No, no, no. This is the, the. I suppose it'll be the prototype. Yeah. But to think that with a maximum speed of 180 miles an hour in 1950. Yeah, screw that. Oh, yeah, it's not that. <laughs> it's, not even like, it's not even like smooth billiard table motorways. Well, I don't know, like, the, the autobahns were okay. What, in the 1950s? Yeah. Well, I don't know, they've probably been bombed quite a lot by then. But Well, yeah, they'd be just recovering, to be fair. Anyway, so that's a, that's a, that's Chris's car. It's a very good choice, mate. I'm not, not going to lie, that's that's a really good choice. Yeah. I've seen, you know, to be fair, I've seen that car in the Stuttgart um, Museum. And it's oh, the side exhaust from just in front of the doors. It just the bloke who does the, the thing is though that is the bloke who designed that car loved cars and he loved the way that cars are meant to look. You look at some of the cars nowadays and they've got no soul, no passion. But you look at that thing and you go, "Ooh, it's <laughs> wrong." It doesn't. Dacia Sandero has mm -hmm. lots of character. Thank you. I know. Uh, to be fair, the Dacia, the new Dacia SUV looks all right. No, it's an SUV. It doesn't look all right. Yeah. yeah, for an SUV it looks alright. No, Chris. IX has one. What, oh, Daisy, you just go. Yeah. Ah. Oh, that's well. That's all. Right. I feel sorry for her. Where do I send the card to that says get well soon? <laughs> <laughs> Jersey. Jersey. Just Jersey. Oh, it, 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 it'll get there. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, there's not that many people on there, so they'll look at the name and go, oh, that's for so and so. And they deliver it to the door. Road. <laughs> right. Exactly. My go. Following on from Mercedes-Benz 300 SLR, which Chris chose and uh, I forgot about, um, is their other slightly dominant um, car of the decade, which was the uh, Mercedes W196, a car which Sterling Moss also happened to drive, along with Manuel Fangio and other good people. Um, this was their Grand Prix car. Now, I don't know about you chaps, but uh, you know the debate that goes on about Formula 1 being an open-wheel class? Yeah, yes. this this uh, rather ruined that, didn't it? Well, you say ruined it. Well, <laughs> made it more interesting. Exactly. Well, no, it, it made it to the point where they had to accept that nobody was allowed to cover the wheel arches. Yeah, but it looks so. It looks so good with the covered wheel arches. It does. It does. Yeah. Stunning. So the Mercedes W one nine six, both in a sort of old school cigar shape, as the race cars of the time were, and also in the streamliner bodywork they used to attract such as Monza, which had basically no low speed corners. Um, it was, shall we say, slightly dominant? 
Nine wins. Uh, absolutely. You could say that. Not, nine, nine wins, wins in 12, 12 races, races, 17 podiums, eight pole positions, nine fastest laps, two drivers' championships. The constructors' championship didn't exist, but it would have won that quite easily. Um, of course, had Sterling Moss and Manuel Fangio going, going for the title, both of which won by the Argentine. Um, 2.5. Hang on, what's this? It was not that powerful. Only 139 horsepower, it says here. That's yes, hard. but it wouldn't have weighed... Yeah, but that's in the 1950s. 139 brake horsepower in 1950s, Sean. Yeah, but even so. I suppose... What, what Most was... road cars didn't have over, like, 50. Yeah, but that was the case until the 90s. Well, true, but still. Um, anyway, yeah. Open wheel. Oh, this, this is cool. So, the British Grand Prix, which was Fangio's first win... Where the Mercedes romped to a one-two-three-four finish. You're not going to see that this year with, with uh, Hamilton and Bottas, are you? I don't know. They could get like a one-two-three-four with like McLaren, and it could or be Aston a Mercedes Martin. or Aston Martin. I don't. Well, having said that, isn't McLaren now? Is McLaren going back to McLaren Mercedes, or is it still just normal McLaren? Because if it was McLaren Mercedes, then you could have a one-two-three-four Mercedes. Such is the difference between uh, modern times and now. The uh, the car was a. Uh, Quoted as being not as nice a drive as the Maserati 250F, but uh, was shorter finish. So obviously Maserati and Mercedes have completely changed their ethos in the last 70 years. <laughs> Mercedes, be, Mercedes being uber reliable and Maserati not. Exactly. Yeah, Maserati, well, Maserati don't really exist anymore. So yeah, Mercedes definitely have a perfected reliability, <laughs> haven't they? No, no, Maserati are bringing out a generic, boring hypercar. So you know they do exist. A generic, boring mm. hypercar, as opposed to those really quite nice ones. Mm. Please name me a very nice hypercar. Any Lamborghini? Anything from McLaren? No. No. <laughs> uh, I suppose that the the oh, what's the new one? Sabre, that looks alright. I just love it how that somebody, the, the only privately owned W196R, sold for £21 million. That's a lot of money. Is that all? Yeah, that's all. Just £21 million. Who's buying them? Oh, I can yeah. only imagine it's like a billionaire baron from Dubai or something. Bernie I'd Eccleston. love to. I'd love to imagine being able to take something like that to Goodwood. It would be... Fantastic, yeah, but you could only run it once a year, and you have to get the Mercedes Heritage Museum to bring along a couple of engineers to run the thing. Yeah, well, that's all right. If you can afford to buy it, you can afford to pay them. This is all literally just pocket change to them at this point, Chris. (laughs) It really means nothing to them. Well, yeah, but you know, just this is the most how the other half live, right? I'm all right. So, it's 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 saying here. That uh, up to 2.5 litres of 0.5 or 0.5 litres supercharged uh, could produce 300 horsepower. But then it's also yeah. sa- it's also saying loads of other random figures. Like studies by Mercedes showed that 390 brake horsepower at 10,000 RPM, which is a you know quite small number, uh, could be achieved from 0.5 litres with a supercharger pressure at 4.4 atmospherics, which is quite a lot. It was a very, very impressive car. It's uh, from an engine point of view. I mean, I mean, it was supercharged. This was at a point where F1 were beginning to restrict engine sizes, uh, and you had a choice. You either went for something with a huge uh, displacement, and it was normally aspirated, or you go and stick a supercharger or a turbocharger in there, 
and um, try and make more power there. I mean, they were nowhere near as uh, efficient as, say, the turbo era of F1 in the 80s. Yeah, but that's but... a bit of an era, 30 years. Ex ex exactly. But still, the, the amount of power that they're producing from... Well, particularly for what was the 1950s there as right. well. Is, I've got, is, I've got the, you, can't, you can't put your head around it. I've got the figure. An eventual 340 brake horsepower at 10,000 RPM was targeted for the 2.5 litre F1 motor. So there we go. That's 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 what I'm going with. So that's pretty good, really. It is. So and that revs to this is before the quote-unquote F2 regs, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, no, uh, this was the beginning of the F2 regs. No. Right. Well, when they changed the one points. Was it the 1.2, 1.5s? Was oh, it? no. 1.5s was in 1961. They originally had... Your choice was either 1.5 litre or 4.5 litre... Sorry, 1.5 litre forced-induced or 4.5 litre normally aspirated. That was until 1951. Then they went to the Formula 2 regs and F... 52 and 53 then they opened it up a little bit more so from 54 until 1960 it was two and a half liter uh sorry no more than two and a half liter cool and then a chap called colin chapman turned up with a very nice lovely yeah that's... was it cooper engine at the time climax cooper climax and just went oh here's how you're meant to do it yeah but for, it wasn't colin for the chapman time, either but yeah for the time sorry for the time the W196 was literally the game changer in Formula 1. It went from the cigar shaped to actually doing it properly. And then obviously we'll get to what happens it's also, next. It's year. also the first proper Formula 1 car that we've mentioned in this series. Correct. What, as opposed to one that's from before the war. As a, Yeah, as opposed to a Grand Prix car. Grand because Formula 1 came in in... 1950. Yeah. Well, it technically came in before then, but they only made it a World Championship event in 1950. Uh, uh, not strictly true, actually. The Maseratis I, I spoke about in the 1940s were for Formula One regulations, but oh, okay. this was um, this was one of the points I was actually going to mention because uh, uh, I wanted to do an honourable mention for W196 here. This was probably the first purpose-built car hmm. for Formula One since the Formula yeah. One regulations came out because everything before were just retrofitted to old 1930s and 1940s cars before the war got in the way. Monty, should we go to your, your topic? Because he seems to talk about this car a little bit. Oh, okay. Well, if you insist. Sorry, have I just taken over from you? Is there no, anything no, else you mine, want mine to say? Mine was all done. You can, <clears throat> you can carry on now. Oh, all right. Fair enough. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, so um, I, I wanted to give this uh, car an honourable mention just because purely it was the first purpose-built car for... Uh, Formula One regulations. Uh, for me, the 1950s really was about Formula One because uh, it was now a world championship series. Uh, their drivers were beginning to get their elite status, so gladiator statuses from it as well. Um, and the technology from a car point of view or an engineer point of view was really being pushed into here because, I mean, you, you look at Indy cars and they were still running around in the same 20-year-old chassis with diesel engines and if they were really really lucky they could move from the dirt ovals to a tarmac oval once a year called the indy 500 no it would never catch on at all um but formula one really did push on technology so i couldn't shortlist to one car again i'm so sorry on this <laughs> but yeah w196 i wanted to give an honorable mention because yes it was the first purpose-built car uh for formula one regulations and, well, very much like what they're doing today, they've just shown the competition how it's done. 
Um, they aren't my car of the decade, however, because, well, if you have a good organization and lots of money, well, in theory, anyone can do that. Unless you're Toyota. I was about to say Toyota. Absolutely. Exactly. And uh, honourable mention there as well to Jaguar as well. Cooey. Anyway, so uh, the cars I actually wanted to mention were the 1950s, or race cars from the 1950s. There's two. Again, this is in Formula One. The first one I wanted to mention is the Maserati 250F. Um, Great car. This was also produced... As for Formula One regulations, it was introduced in 1954, and it it was more of a successor to its previous models rather than a clean slate, which is why I liked the Mercedes more. Yeah, that's because Maserati However, didn't have the money. Exactly. However, Maserati did make a car that was available for so many people to get involved into. I mean, what do we have? Today we have two cars in an F1 team, yeah? Mm -hmm. 30 years ago uh, was kind of the end of the era of a third car being run and stuff like that. In the 1950s, Maserati, right, check this stat out. In the 46 Grand Prix that they entered, they had 277 entrants in a Maserati. <laughs> That's an average of six Maserati 250Fs in every race that they participated. That's amazing. Because they sold them as well, didn't they? They weren't... Not exactly. necessarily Maserati-run cars. They were privateers as well. Exactly, and that was what they were catering for. They really did pad out the F1 field, and it just happened that the car happened to be bloody quick because Fangio won races in it in 1954 before he then got poached by Mercedes halfway through. In 1956, uh, Sterling Moss drove the car and won and came second in the championship. In 1957... Fanjo returned to Maserati, the same car he started in 54. He was back in there. And the story of how he managed his greatest win at the Nürburgring, that was done in this car as well. And it was just such a widely available car that it didn't matter if you were in the works team or if you were running it as a privateer, it gave people the opportunity to go racing. They produced um, 28 of these cars. Originally, it came with a 2.5 litre straight six engine. In 56 and 57, they upgraded this to a V12. Very nice. Um, and uh, also the gearbox went from 4-speed to 5-speed. They replaced the drum brakes to disc brakes as well. And, That's great. Um, That's great. Yeah, it, time. it really was ahead of its time. It was re a revolutionary car. And as I say, a widely available car. And all of this done on a shoestring budget is why this car, for me, is more impressive than the Mercedes, which is why I would vote for this as being one of the ones. My, um, I've, got also two, fun I've got two favorite go on, facts go on, about go this on. car. Number yeah. one is that the famous story about the, when it won at the Nürburgring yep. against the Mercs. It's just <clears throat> absolute outsider coming into that race. Um, I think it's like a Top Gear article many, many years ago where they just recounted the story. It was amazing. If I can find it, I'll put a link to it. Yeah. The other was um, the fuel. 50% methanol. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was about to mention that, actually. Here's the fuel mixture for this. Brace yourselves. 50% methanol, 35% petrol, 10% acetone, 4% benzyl, and the last percent, castor oil. <laughs> yes, that yeah. wonderful stuff that parents used to make their kids drink in that time <laughs> as well. Hey, if it's good enough for Maserati 250F, it's good enough for your inside, son. <laughs> anyway. That's advertising. <laughs> 
um, but yeah, so the, the car was competitive all the way until it, its last race in 1960. Granted, it didn't win another race after Fangio retired in 58, but it was still on the podium up until 1960. And given that the car was by then really outclassed by re rear engine cars, I think that really does say a lot about how competitive the car was and, as I say, how widely available it was. Hmm. The other car which I have voted for being my car of the decade, in stark contrast to this, is the Cooper Type 43. With the Again, we're with in the shortest Wikipedia page I've ever seen. I know, it's wonderful, isn't it? So I'm not going to quote Wikipedia, I'm just going to quote my memory. Uh, so, um, Cooper Type 43 was the first Formula One winning car, which was rear-engined. Uh, won by Sterling Moss in the 1958 Argentine Grand Prix. Uh, this was essentially the predecessor to the championship-winning type. Correct me if I'm wrong here. I think it's the 54, which Jack Brabham won in 59 and 1960. Well, definitely in 59 with. I think they got another car for 1960. But this was... Cooper were renowned for uh, having even less of a budget than, say, Maserati <laughs> and Ferrari and all of that. And it really was about what they called back then the garagistes. We've got absolutely nothing, so how can we make nothing competitive? And this was really what British motorsport culture was all about in the 50s and the 60s, and where Colin Chapman got his inspiration from, I think it would be fair to say. Cooper were renowned for their Formula 3 cars, small engines, widely available, and rear engine. They made them really fast, nice and slidey, and just a, a general pleasure to drive these things. When they entered Formula 1, the regulations at the time were, as we've already discussed... Up to two and a half litre engines. So that was fine for Maserati with their V12s. Uh, that was fine for Mercedes with their supercharged straight line eight engines. Cooper don't have the money for that. So they go and stick in a four cylinder Climax engine, uh, which is Best name well, ever. firstly, it, it was one and a half litre. And I think they started boring it out to two litres in 58, which is what helps with its um, competitiveness. To be fair, it um, won a two and a half litre in 58. And a certain Bernie Eccleston drove one as well. He did, yes, yes, you're right. And, um, no, not very no. well. So he, he did it end he, his career as well. He only ever did one race, and then he, after that, he decided that he was going to manage. So instead of driving in Formula One, he owned Formula One instead. Not bad. No, uh, not but bad yeah, so, so Cooper 40, uh, Type 43 for me really does it as a car of the decade because this was revolutionary. Not only was it uh, purpose-built for the Formula 1 regulations, but it was finding the loopholes in the Formula 1 regulations. They realised they didn't have the budget for nice, big, magnesium uh, chassis and big, powerful engines. So they went, we've got to think outside the box here. They put the engine in the rear, so all of a sudden they now had a nice, light, nimble car. And uh, they managed to prove over the next two years with this car and all of its future variants that this was the way forward. And every single Formula One car from the T43 afterwards, with the exception of one more Ferrari in 1959, again because of engine power. <laughs> on also backwards, but yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, and I don't really count that win for one simple reason. Was it India? The no, it was Avis. So of course oh. you're going to win if you have the most powerful engine and you're racing up and down uh, the autobahn. That's just a no-brainer there. But with the exception of that, the Cooper proved that on any other circuit with corners, that uh, they had the best car in the field, even though they were running an engine 500cc smaller than the rest. They were 100 horsepower down on the rest. 
and they were winning Grand Prix. And as I say, it set the future. Uh, Chris mentioned earlier about the Lotuses, Colin Chapman. A lot of his inspiration came from what Cooper started. Mm. And I think it's safe to say that every Grand Prix car since Cooper uh, can thank their foundations of their Grand Prix cars from what Cooper put in there. It's so that, guys is why I have the Cooper T43 and the Maserati T50 Sir, 250F as my cars of the decade. No, they're good choices. Cars. It's surprising. I've, I've never heard of the T43. I don't know how many people will, will have, but... Uh, no, it, it, really it's, everyone will know of its successor, the one which Jack Brabham won him, but everyone forgets that it was actually Sterling Moss who gave them... Of course, it was going to be Moss. He's driven every bloody car, I think, <laughs> available in the 50s. Um, he was the one that won with it. And it wasn't even in the works Cooper team either. It was as a privateer entry for Rob Walker. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Right, Samantha. Slightly different. Yes. The best car of this list. <laughs> um, sure. You can't say that after I've just gone on a huge ramble like that. Well, I have chosen his, the his, Jaguar. the most green. Yes, and therefore the best. Um... The Jaguar D-Type. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, this was uh, a sports car, for anyone who doesn't know. It was raced primarily uh, for Le Mans and the World Sports Car Championship. Who obviously. doesn't know what the D-Type um, is? And caused I mean, the crash of Le Mans 1955. I mean, yeah, we're going to come circle round to where we started with that crash at Le Mans in 55 that was partially, or Dying. however you want to look at it, caused by... The Jaguar D-Type of Mike Hawthorne um, overtaking the slower car quite late, and then Pierre Levey didn't see the car because he was focusing too much on uh, what was in front of him mm. and uh, and the D-Type. And understandably, because the D-Type is very, very pretty. <laughs> um, but uh, we've spoken about the Le Mans disaster, um, and obviously it was terrible. Jaguar did not pull out of the race they kept going so although it did win the 1955 Le Mans um, I mean maybe arguably that's not the best one to um, to go with they did also win Le Mans in 56 and 57 yeah, made up for it. however um, so it's a three times Le Mans winner um, it only was produced for four years 54 to 57 and this was essentially Jaguar wanting to take it to Ferrari. Now, I've worked on one of these cars at my previous job. Um, admittedly, it was a road vers version, which is um, the XKSS rather than a D-Type. But it's it's the same. It's clearly a D-Type. Um, and it's amazing, really, when you look at the, the dates of when the cars were made, of how advanced they actually are. Um, I mean, this had a monocoque chassis, for one. Um, it was essentially designed like an aeroplane. It was designed to be as low drag as possible and as a small frontal area. So to do that, they used a dry sump so that they could mount the engine lower in the car, which undoubtedly, as well as being better for aerodynamics, probably helped with handling as well. Um, the fuel tank was right at the back of the car, in a soft-bodied fuel tank, which is quite modern, even by today's standards. Well, yeah, nowadays we use, like, Kevlar fuel tanks, don't we? Yeah, this was, um, it was out of an aeroplane, so it was deformable, so it would fit into the really, really small tapered rear end. It had that classic D 
D-type aerodynamic fin yeah. on the back, streamlining. Yeah, Sean is a fan of the shark fins. Um, and it had disc brakes as well, outboard disc brakes, which meant that they could change them during the race if needed. Um, Jaguars, and this is the, are you ready for this name? Yep. Jaguars uh, racing manager in the early 50s was a man called Lofty England. What a name. <laughs> yes. If you ever wanted a bloke to be your the manager of your English racing team, <laughs> Lofty England is Lofty... there for you. Is Sounds that, like da, an da, 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 Is that his genuine da, name? That was genuinely his name. Lofty. Wow. In, well, his name was Frank Raymond Wilson England, but he was known as not. <clears> is um, it because he was tall? It'd be funny if he was Presumably, yes. Um, or, he's or six the foot five. There you go. No, he just spent all the time in the attic trying to find bits for his Jaguar. He was in the loft, yeah. Uh, they went to Le Mans in 54 with the brand new D type Jag, and it was. It was quite good, but it was not brilliant, and it um, it was it suffered a bit with fuel um, because they basically they were filtering the fuel too much and not getting enough of it to go into the engine, um, which is where it's useful. Small problem. Uh, yeah, but what they did notice is that they were going down the right track when on the Mulsanne straight the Ferrari one sixties, which had a four point nine liters, so a much bigger engine, nearly two liters bigger. Um, was doing 160 mile an hour, whereas the uh, three liter D type was doing 172 mile an hour. Fucking hell! Was that with or without the fuel starvation? Well, that that was in '54, so presumably that was with the fuel starvation. So very very fast, basically. In 1954, um, this is in '54. Yeah, nearly. Well, that nearly... GT3 speed, isn't it? That's like current yeah, GT3. Yeah. yeah, top speed. Yeah. Yeah, but they've also got very manual gear. Yeah, this oh, yes. would have been a five-speed manual gearbox. Could you, gears. could you imagine like running down the Mulsanne straight in your in your Aston uh, Vantage GT3 car, and then no, just taken by a T-type from well, it'd be eighty years ago, seventy years ago. It would be brilliant. It would be brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Well, maybe not if you were driving the brand new GT3 car, but it'd be brilliant for the rest yeah. of us. Um, <laughs> They, they, as I said, they won in 55, 56 um, with the works team. And then after that, um, Jaguar kind of moved away from racing to a certain extent. What, did they run away um, again? And they sold... Yes. <laughs> so to get around that, what they did was sell the cars uh, to a small racing team based in Edinburgh called Acuria Cos. Hey. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, which... Painted the cars navy blue, took them to the Le Mans, and won. Um, in a private car, technically. They beat Aston Works teams from Aston and from Ferrari. That's quite in the Acuria cars, which is quite good. Um, and yeah, obviously I, I they had a long tradition. Of... So that's, that's, yeah, yeah well, there you go. It's that's the Acuria cars. It's Scottish racing blue. Um and yeah, and, and it was just a brilliant car. It was absolutely stunning. It was the long... They had a long nose variant for things like Le Mans, which were more drag-orientated. They had a short nose version for more agility and, and races where it didn't actually matter too much, the aerodynamics. Sebring. Uh, Sebring, for example, yeah. Um, they A lot of them did race in America as well. Privately owned ones were sold and, and exported to America and were raced quite extensively. 
over there as well. Um, it won the Reams 12 hour um, in, we're looking for the year 54. So although it didn't win Le Mans that year, it won at uh, Reams once they've sorted out the uh, fuel starvation. And yeah, it's it's just one of those cars that whenever you see one, you go, Qua, it's a D-side Jag. Mm. Well, it's like I what agree. I said for my, for my 300 SLR. You look at it, you look at those cars where people have put their heart and soul into designing them to look aerodynamic. Because, you know, there's always that case where if a car looks right, it tends to be quite quick. That's correct, yeah. I mean, but when you look <clears> at the two, considering they race together, the for, the Mercedes is very function, isn't it? It's low drag. It's very it's, it's nice looking, but the Jag is absolutely gorgeous. Nah, the SLR's better. No, it's not. No, it's not. It is. Okay, it's functional. No, it, it just is. is. Monty? Uh, sorry, Chris. The, the ah, drag. Ah, <laughs> I love the Mercedes you. in every s- essence, but just to be able to go the jag the just jag. does it for me. <laughs> it just does it for me to being able to go. Yeah, look at these two. Because you have yeah, look. That's the Merc. You can't really do the same there, can you? Yes, it's quick. Yes, it's streamlined. It's efficient. It's, it's everything. Not the jag. Not the jag. <laughs> you can go with some. It just doesn't have the same <laughs> essence, does it? Chris, what did you yeah, say? Right. Chris, what did you say your car sold for auction at some point? Uh, it was over twenty. It was twenty-one million. I know. I'm seeing that the 1955, yeah. <laughs> a 1955 model sold for twenty million dollars, not twenty million pounds. But what I found mad is somebody bought one in 2008 and it sold for two point two million. All they had to do was hold on it for eight years, and the the cost of the vehicle went up one thousand percent. Sounds like a house prices and. Do you want to know something, <laughs> something interesting, though, about the this one, the value of the of the D type, the going? first production D type. So the, this is XKD five hundred nine, which is the registration plate, but that is the Jaguar, like the works team Jaguar, hmm. that sold at Bonhams in two thousand and eight for two point two million. Uh-huh. A slightly later one was sold a lot more recently. At Sotheby's in 2016. This is what Chris just said. It's literally what I've just said. Oh, okay. let him finish. Let him finish. Let him finish. Nine point eight. For how much? Nineteen point eight. Well, there you go, guys. It's just justified. There's much more demand for the D nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> Let's. Well, that's fine. Is that is is that is the last line? It's like th- because they were classed as obsolete in the 60s, they were changing hands for three grand. Could you imagine? Yeah, yeah, they were changing between three to five grand because nobody wanted them. Why would you need one? Yeah, but at that point, it was just a racing car that wasn't legal to race anywhere. It wasn't, yeah, a, it wasn't a classic race car. It was it just an old yeah, car. It was an LP1 yeah. car. So if you want a top tip, go and buy an X really <laughs> cool race car now that is properly obsolete, and then in about the sixty years' time, you'll be able to sell it for a couple of million pounds. Yeah, yeah, cars will never about be ten years ago. A Cura LMP2. There we are. Let's go and get some of those. No, get an RS Spider. Get, get, get the better one. The better one? <laughs> All right, fair enough. Let's close out because Al's not here. So let's just quickly talk about Lancia D50. Uh, it was Lancia. They were, they were very bankrupt and it was preceded and succeeded by Ferrari. Yes. There you go. I was going to say, it wasn't the one, that, the one that Ferrari then changed into their yes. own car. Yes, it was. Yes. Yeah. This was, this was and killed Ferrari. Alberto Ascari. Yep. 
So well mm, done, yes. well done, Al. Great choice. <laughs> <laughs> the D fifty. That was the one with external fuel tanks, wasn't it? Probably. Uh, it's out, yes, that's that, out, that sounds like a lancier thing to do. Because there's a pointy aid when um, Ascari fell into the harbour in Monaco in '55. Yeah. God, this is a good one. So you know how Monty's had really cool fuel. When you go on Wikipedia for the D50, it says fuel gasoline. <laughs> there we go. Just wow. Gasoline. Wow. Well, of course, uh, Agip's jungle juice wasn't invented by them, was it? So uh, <laughs> they all had to just use it normally. Yeah. But yeah, good job, Al. Mm. And uh, but better job, I think, to, to the rest of us. I think we we did a much better job. We a lot up. of research, uh, a lot of good debating in here, and um, interesting again that uh, you can almost see from the decades how it was all very open to begin with, and now it's all just kind of narrowing into Le Mans and yeah. Formula One for now. Yeah. I'd be intrigued to see how things change in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Well, it depends because, when, group, um, when, when does Group B come along? Uh, 1982? Yeah. Well, let's wait for that. It's going to be fucking ages if we get to then. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm looking forward to the 70s, actually. IMSA, that created a lot of interesting things. It was like America finally getting on board with um, cars which are decent. Pan Am in the 60s. Oh, I like Pan Am. Oh, that good that's good. That good but point. that's all for next time. Uh, in the yes. meantime, thank you to Monty, Chris and Sam for joining me. Pleasure's all yours, Sorry. my friend. It was. And uh, we shall see you next time. Tell us who, we, who you think won. Obviously, I did. Obviously, it was Sam. It was obviously me. <laughs> um, until then, thank you for listening. Take care. Follow us on social media and goodbye. Bye. Have fun. Stay goodbye. safe.